Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Summer Evans in for Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. The Netflix miniseries The Liberator is based on the true story of the Thunderbirds Battalion. They were a group of U.S. forces that spent 500 consecutive days in combat in 1943. The series combines live-action performances and computer animation, creating an uncanny special effect of the characters. Atlanta-based audio production company The Tune Welders wrote and produced the entire score of The Liberator. We'll hear from the three longtime friends and musicians behind the impressive body of work. But first, a witty novel about a pair of sisters who share an infatuation with words. The novels of Kathleen Shine are rich in humor and filled with memorable characters. She's a keen social observer repeatedly compared to Jane Austen, especially if Jane Austen were from an upper-middle-class Jewish family in New York. Shine often writes about families, and her latest book, The Grammarians, explores the relationship of twins through their love of language. The book is out now in paperback. Lois Reitz has spoke with Kathleen Shine from NPR West in December of 2019, and she began by asking Kathleen why she wanted to write about twins. Originally, it never even occurred to me, I, I wanted to write about two people who were close in some way, I hadn't decided what the relationship was, who have a falling out over a word. And, and originally, they were going to be translators. But then I realized I only speak English. So writing about translation was not going to be very authentic, shall we say. <laughs> Someone mentioned Dear Abby and Ann Landers to me, and they were identical twins. And they had an enormous feud. They were identical twins, both of whom had advice columns that were very important in my day growing up. Everybody read them. Yes. But they had an enormous feud for decades. And so that made me think about twins. And then I thought, no, twins, it's too difficult. I can't even imagine what it's like to be a twin. The more I thought about it, the more... It seemed to be exactly the relationship that I wanted, which is one that is so close, and yet the two parties really need to differentiate themselves and be individuals. And that kind of energy, that kind of magnetic push and pull was something I really wanted to explore. So I don't have twins. I'm not a twin. I don't know very many twins, but it became more and more intriguing the more I thought about it. I know there's been a lot of research in recent years by sociologists and uh, developmental psychologists on twins. Did you immerse yourself in any of that? I did. And some of the early research was so unethical. I mean, it's really terrifying. Twins would be separated put in different families, and then studied. But one would be put into a poor family and one would be put into a well-to-do family. Mm. And they'd be stu- and they were never told they were twins. <gasps> Things like that were done, which were really sort of awful. There was a lot of confusion about twins. And I think there's always been this mystique because it's something that's so hard to take in. Yeah, I read a lot about it, and I, I read things written by twins. And there is a, uh, there's a big convention of twins in, I believe it's in Twin Falls, Minnesota. <laughs> of course it um, is. Which I did not go to, but I wish I had. But finally, you know, you really have to do what you always have to do with a character, which is imagine who they are, what they're feeling, what they're seeing. And when I 
imagined one of them looking at the other, I found it really profound and exciting to write about. So what I was afraid of getting into because it was too remote from me finally turned out to be a really interesting, kind of exciting experience. Hmm. In fact, I wanted to ask you about the photo on the cover, these adorable (laughs) little redhead girls. Are they actual people you know? I know nothing about them. That cover was sent to me, and usually the first cover that's sent to you is not particularly good, and you kind of think, oh, no, they don't understand the book. What are we going to do? How am I going to say this politely? But this cover was sent to me, and I thought, oh, my God, someone just hit it. I don't know who they are. I don't know where they found them. I don't know what they did to them to make them look like. They're fabulous. I, I love them. They're creepy, and they're adorable (laughs) at the same time. They're mischievous-looking. You have a little touch of possible destruction in them, and they're adorable. So I I love them. Yeah, I was very, very excited about the cover. As the story begins, the twins, Laurel and Daphne, are communicating in a way that belies the fact they are infants, Would you describe their exchange? Lots of times, twins have a secret language. And it's not a formal language in the sense that linguists consider different dialects and things a language. But it's their language, and they communicate in it, and they talk back and forth from their cribs. This is not uncommon for twins. And so I had my twins just start talking when they're just babies, And to their parents, it sounds like they're talking baby talk. But in fact, they're having this rather sophisticated and fairly cynical conversation (laughs) about how their parents are always late bringing them the bottle. And, well, maybe if I scream, they'll hurry up. You know, this kind of manipulative, cynical conversation about their parents. But they're just two little tiny babies in their cribs. And their language, the language they created to communicate between themselves is blingo? You know, I had originally thought, oh, I'm going to create a whole language, which is hilarious when you know about language, when, which I learned. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's very difficult. But what I did do was I looked at the Mitford sisters, Mm -hmm. Nancy Mitford, Jessica Mitford. The younger Mitford sisters had their own language that they made up, and it had certain grammatical rules and phonetic rules. Someone had done a a graduate study poster of it, which I found on the Internet, and um, I kind of studied that and tried to figure out a few a few rules for for my girl's language and so there's a there are a few bits where it's in their language but usually I I translate it for the reader. Yes, you do it adeptly. How does never become defter? Did you have a um, formula there? If you think of a sort of nasal n the it it kind of turns into a the so I had a few I don't know if you call it phonetic or phonological or just me fooling around um, <laughs> trying to speak in a nasal voice but i had a i had a couple of little equivalencies that i that i used and then was able to to make up some of the words the pediatrician tells their mother that this is not unusual and they will outgrow it once they begin to speak properly that does not happen No, they keep the language for special secret communication between the two of them. Kind of how my parents used Yiddish. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. There's, you know, a risque joke. You get to the punchline, out with the mother tongue. Right. That's my grandmother used to do that. and, And that's why I finally, I would beg my grandparents to teach me some words so I could understand their dirty jokes. (laughs) Well, each chapter begins with a definition from a dictionary of the English language by Samuel Johnson. Did you apply the chapter headings as the final touch to the chapter, or did you choose the word and then the chapter, that part of the plot followed? No, I wrote the book, had the chapters, And then I tried various words. I changed them a lot. 
Um, and sometimes I think, yes, this is the word. And then I'd go back and look at it. And I think, no, it's, it's not right. And when I found the right word was when I then understood what that chapter was really about. It worked together. The word and the chapter, when I knew it was the right word, was also when I had a kind of real understanding of what that chapter was about, what it was doing. That was an amazingly satisfying and really fun part of the composition of the book. That was really fun because, first of all, I got to read through Samuel Johnson's dictionary, which is, you know, for me, it's like reading a comic book or something. It's just (laughs) delightful. And there are all these words I've never heard of that are obsolete, and a lot of his definitions are quite amusing. So that was a kind of procrastination without guilt. You know, I could do that and say, oh, I'm working. And then finding the word was a great revelation when I really found the right word. So that was great. But yeah, I did it at the end. If I'd done it at the beginning, it wouldn't have worked for me. It just would have been boring. I would have been writing a chapter to fit a word, which is not the way I I work. Not the process. Well, it's gratifying for the reader as well because you encounter the word at the opening of the chapter and after... The chapter ends, if you thumb back a few pages and look at that word, it has all the more meaning in terms of the story. I wanted that kind of resonance for it. Thank you. Would you talk about the role of a modern dictionary in this story? One of the characters, really, I would say, is the Merriam-Webster International Dictionary second edition which was in the 60s, the uh, third edition came out, which was a big scandal in the world of lexicography because the third edition incorporated all kinds of slang without designating it as slang, just saying these are words that we can consider real words. And a lot of very conservative lexicographers and just readers and English teachers were horrified. But the second edition, which is what is a kind of character in the book was was much more formal. Of course, I love both, but I found the I had just read a wonderful book called The Story of Ain't, which is about this transition from the second to the third edition. So I wanted this dictionary to kind of play a role as the standard against which these girls would either rebel or actually just embrace it. But then I decided I actually had to have one of these dictionaries. You know, they're certainly out of print. But apparently I ordered two on eBay. I thought I bought one, but then I must have (laughs) forgotten. And then some nights later, well, I used to take Ambien, so I used to buy a lot of strange books and many (laughs) copies of them. That should be your next book. Oh, it was terrible. These, You know, I'd, I'd get books, and then I'd think, but I already have this. And then then the third copy would come, and I'd think, uh-oh. So I, I stopped taking Ambien. Yeah, so I have these two huge, musty, smelly dictionaries in my house now, which are wonderful to look at. I have to take a, an antihistamine when I open <laughs> them, but... But one of them, I just, I mean, half the time I just use it as a footstool. I mean, they're, I, they're gigantic, so... Well, this... Dictionary is a sacred object for the twins. And in fact, its stand is compared to an altar. I think a lot of people my age, sort of boomer age, remember a dictionary on a big stand, either in your house or your grandparents' house. And there was something kind of sacred about it. It was this very special thing, and you could go and look at it, and and it opens up an entire world. I mean, many people felt the same way about, say, the the World Book or Mm -hmm. the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, pre-internet, pre-Google, this was like, you know, Googling things. I very much imagined this big dictionary open on this stand and having it be a kind of altar. And when I first wrote that, I thought, oh, altar, that will be one of the words that they look up. And it was before I had my dictionary. So I went online, and some pages of that dictionary are online. You can find them, a facsimile of them, or a photograph of them, basically. The only problem was that page was missing, Hmm. the page with alter. So at first I was very upset and thought, what am I going to do? And then I thought, oh, well, 
I'll put that in the book. They'll look up Alter, and that page will be missing. Mm. So, Well, their mother, the twins' mother, Sally, worries what kind of child befriends a dictionary and tries to take it to bed with her so we'll have someone to talk to. Kathleen, were you like that as a kid? Did you love dictionaries? I was too lazy, really, as a child. I, I read a lot, and I read things that were much too difficult for me. I fancied myself that kind of child, and I wanted to go look things up, but then I'd get distracted and, and not do it. So these children are, are uh, much more assiduous mm -hmm. than, uh, than I was as a child. In fact, they treat words as their pets. Would you yeah. explain how their love for language dictates the trajectory of their lives? As children, they love words almost in a reified way. They think of them as things, really, and they play with them. They have games, not, not like crossword or anything like that, but as if each word is a creature. And they collect words, and they just they love them as if they were pets. As they get older, one of them, the younger one, becomes first a copy editor whose job really is to make sure that, that the words in a piece of copy, in, in this case she's working for a, a downtown New York newspaper, to make sure that there are no grammatical mistakes or spelling mistakes or confusion caused by the words. And she becomes quite rigid about it. You know, she really feels like grammar is like good government. It keeps everything stable and running smoothly. And it is that in a certain way. Whereas her sister, Laurel, the older one, she starts out, she's a kindergarten teacher, but she quits her job when she gets pregnant. She wants to be home with her baby when the little girl starts to speak. She's still obsessed with language, fascinated by it, but in a different way, and she wants to observe it. She wants to listen, not to tell people what to do about it, but to listen as her daughter discovers language, the birth of language. And eventually she discovers, it's actually a book about, by a linguist uh, named Charles Fries that I also used as, as research, and she discovers th these little fragments of language that he used, of informal language that was written because these were letters to the War Department. So they're very ungrammatical, a lot of them. And he used them uh, to kind of describe how people do or do not follow grammar when they speak. And she finds them, as I did, very moving. They're just heartbreaking, but they're just little fragments about, you know, please, I need my, I need my son at home. It's very hard to maintain the dirt floor. You know, he's much younger than he said he was. He lied when he went into the army. It's, we need him. We can't survive without him. We're hungry. They're, but they're beautiful. It's like listening to a song, really. Mm. And from these, she starts composing poetry. And she then becomes a, a poet kind of using these fragments in her poems. So they go in, in different ways. And in linguistics, there's an age-old discussion, shall we say, uh, between what are called descriptivists, who are linguists who say, look, our job is not to tell people how to speak, but to describe and understand how people do speak and what language is doing and how it changes. And then there are prescriptivists who say there is a formal way to speak, there is a right way to speak, and if you diverge from that, you are making a mistake, and it's ugly, and we don't, we don't approve of it. And so they sort of go along those, those two lines. And it really becomes an existential quandary for them yeah. as it plays out. Daphne becomes a celebrity columnist. How would you describe her column, The People's Pedant? Well, she becomes a, a sort of minor, local New York kind of celebrity in that maybe something might show up on page six, but she wouldn't be known anywhere else. And if she called to get a reservation for a table at a restaurant, they wouldn't recognize her name and say, oh, yes, we'll give you the best table. But 
she's known among a certain group of publishing and journalist people. Her column is a kind of rant about what's wrong with language and how it's really the apocalypse and how people are misusing language, and it just shows how society is falling apart. I've read pieces written in, you know, 1902, where someone is saying, you know, the language is being ruined by modern slang, and, you know, and then the slang will be something quite that we've just accepted for decades and don't even think of as slang anymore. So she's in that school. We'll be back with more of Lois's conversation with author Kathleen Shine after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Let's return to more of Lois's conversation with author Kathleen Shine. They're discussing her latest book, The Grammarians. The story centers around twin sisters, their love for language, and discovering their independent selves. The novel is out now in paperback. In addition to the dictionary's role in this story, what is the role of Fowler's English language usage? Well, first of all, it's it's a lot of fun to read. He's a wonderful writer, and it's it's all about usage. And he's he's quite um, idiosyncratic in some of his ideas. I think for her, it brings her back into this question about what language is and what it does. For both of them, language is central. Language can bring you together, and language can pull you apart. And language can be benign, and language can be malign. You know, the definition of the word twin I found extremely interesting, which is um, there are two definitions. One is twin as a noun, means the same, two of the same. Twin as a verb means to sever, to pull apart. And um, the richness of language was one of the things I wanted to celebrate in this. You know, much of the book is very playful, and I love language, and I, I love playing with words and puns and that kind of thing. But at the same time, it's very serious in that this is a celebration of how our lives express themselves in language and how language can both be confining and also liberating. The twins have a rift, Mm -hmm. and their mother takes the role of King Solomon. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, what happens? Two things about it. One is, when I finished writing it, for me it was very emotional in terms of just composing it as I wrote it. And when I finished writing it, I thought, okay, this is either really good or really bad. And I had to leave it for a while and then come back and decide, yes, this is this is what I want. And also at the end I thought, I wonder I wonder if I wrote this entire book because what I really want, the whole point of it, is to say to my two sons, you had better be friends when I'm dead, or I'm going to come back and haunt you. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the, those are the two things I can, I can tell you about, about the ending without it being a spoiler. Yeah. Do you have the book with you? Do you um, want me to read something? Yes, on page 180. It's the last paragraph. Okay. She was thinking about Fowler, 
how generous he was, generous toward all the unconscious word formers in the world, generous toward even the hapless journalist he could not help but take to task for his fallible analogy of abstentions, but mostly generous toward words themselves. She was touched even by the way he phrased things, fallible word formation, as fallible as the hapless humans who created them. He saw language as if it were living and breathing and muddling through like everyone else. That was author Kathleen Shine speaking with Lois Reitzes about her latest novel, The Grammarians. The book is out now in paperback. Have you heard an interview on City Lights that you would like to share with a friend or listen to again? WABE.org slash City Lights is the place to find today's interview, as well as segments from previous shows. We invite you to search, stream, and share your favorite show at WABE.org slash City Lights. And thanks for listening. From recording a commercial with a goat chomping on Doritos to scoring The Liberator, a full-length Netflix series set during World War II, the sound designers known as tune welders have created an impressive body of work. The Atlanta-based musicians are with us now via Zoom, composers Ben Holst and Jason Shannon, with executive music producer Jeremy Gilbertson. Welcome to City Lights. Good morning. Thank you. Ben, the three of you have been friends for a long time. Would you walk us through how you met and eventually got together to start the audio production sound design company, Tune Welders? Oh, sure thing. One of my favorite stories. When I was in uh, seventh grade, I got a phone call after school from Jeremy Gilbertson, who was a, a year older than me up in uh, Connecticut. He was a big-time eighth grader, and uh, he called and asked me if I would join his band as the guitar player. And, uh, yeah, I remember kind of just sort of jumping for joy and go, wow, an older older guy's called me to play in their band. I'll, I'll do it. You know, we started playing together in middle school. He was the drummer. I was the guitar player. We had a band called The Premonition. And you can take that experience and basically fast-forward that friendship through college and into adulthood and in about 2007 or 8 I was getting a little bit more serious with with producing and stuff and working a lot in Nashville and and Jeremy approached me about kind of stepping up my game and 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 organizing the company a little bit more and and going after some bigger business and we incorporated uh, at that point and I sort of uh, pulled back from Nashville and focused on Atlanta and we we kind of kicked off the company then few years later, I met Jason through a mutual friend. Uh, we were both um, moving into the same apartment complex and uh, happened to stumble in, into our buddy Tyson. And he was like, man, you got to meet this guy, Jason. I swear you guys are going to be buddies. You got to meet this dude. And I, it was late. I'd come back from a gig and I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. We'll, we'll hang out. He goes, no, you got to meet him right now. <laughs> Walk me up to his apartment. I <laughs> think Jason, Jason's probably getting ready for bed too. And, uh, we kind of shook hands, and, and at that point, Jason and I started hanging out, and, and it, was, it was pretty evident that we had a, a strong musical and personal connection. So we've been working together since, uh, the three of us, since about 2012. Would each of you talk about your roles for Tune Welders? I think in general, we all wear a, a lot of different hats, which is kind of why this little model works so well. I would say... From my perspective, I do a lot of the outreach and kind of uh, the kickoff of a lot of these projects to figure out, you know, working, whether it's a TV show producer, a showrunner, a filmmaker, you know, someone in the advertising space, content creator, I would sit down with them and kind of figure out what the strategy is and figure out what they're trying to do, what they need music and sound for. And then, you know, we usually huddle up between, uh, you know, the three of us and kind of put a strategy together and get the thing kicked off. You sound modest. <laughs> I've seen some clips. I've heard your drumming. You're modest. But it sounds like you do a lot of the coordination with the business end. 
there certainly is uh, some music and, and things that I knock around on and produce and, and perform on my own as well. But yeah, a lot of the a lot of the front end work between the the content creator and us is I usually kind of quarterback that experience. Jason, you and Ben are listed as co-composers. That's not always easy. Would you talk about your collaborative process? <laughs> well, I, I think Ben would definitely agree that it's not always it's not always easy. You know, in a creative setting, I think collaboration, you know, working with another creative man, it's it's one of the hardest things that you can do. But I believe that we've found a way to be successful and, and work together and expand our own individual capabilities by doing exactly that. I, th I think one thing that I would say that we, we really, you know, we thrive on is the ability to work together as a group in a very creative setting and be critical and beat each other up in a good way. And, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, it makes the music better. And Ben, your role, again, is all composition you know it's, i've been referred to as as somewhat of a, a swiss army knife over the years so i have i have a background in in producing records in sort of the traditional engineering recording studio sense you know i'm, I'm a gap fill in a lot of ways i play guitar upright bass little keys all that stuff i'm, I'm more of a self-taught ear musician you know so i do a lot of the, the the pulling off of the recording of things and and the wrangling of the audio and the and the piecing together and the editing, a lot of that work. One article I read, I think it was in Atlanta Magazine, described you as sonic wizards. So would you talk about how the creative work you do in the studio is meant to achieve audio magic? Well, I think one thing that we work hard to do is to not accept limitations. So there are any number of million dollar studios and bajillion dollar microphones and all this process and all this equipment, all this stuff that certainly can make life easier, maybe more fun sonically. But, you know, we kind of just get it done in a way. And so, you know, if you think of a wizard as somebody who can just get something done, that process isn't necessarily pretty. You know, when it comes down to like making sound effects, there are times when, for instance, we had to do a golf commercial and we just needed the right sort of sound of a golf bag kind of going on someone's shoulder. You could spend three hours looking for that in a sound effects library, or you can just walk out to your client's car who happens to have a golf bag in the back of it and record it on your iPhone, email it to yourself. By the time you're back in the studio, it's sitting in your inbox and you pull it into a session and you're done. So that's the kind of thing where someone might look at that as wizardry. I look at it as the path of least resistance. Yeah, the wizardry component is, to me, the interweaving of what music is and what sound design is, because they all create this, this audio environment, right? Whether it's a musical piece or it's trying to create a realistic effect to match a beautiful visual. And I think the fun that we have is, is bringing these tonal and atonal and melodic and non-melodic elements all together to make this this whole environment rather than focusing you know just on you know sound design or sound effect or just on music or score or a song within it i think it's bringing them both together and letting them weave in and out and kind of the modern aesthetic and it's becoming increasingly this way and in, um, in modern scores is is kind of a mix of music and sound design the one great reference that i always like to use is um, the Arrival score, which was Johannesson. And I think more and more you're getting into these situations where the modern aesthetic is a good mix. And because we really focus on that area in between music and sound design, I think it really kind of elevates you know, the work that we do. Let's talk about the latest project, scoring the soundtrack to the Netflix series the Liberator. How did it come about? Yeah, it's in our nature, I think, Ben, Jason, and I, to invest in people and projects that we believe in and kind of put what Ben always says, put our money where our mouth is or put our music where our mouth is. 
and we had a ran and started building a relationship with a couple of guys, Chad Crowley and Brandon Barr, who were over at School of Humans and now Treoscope Studios, which is the group that you know basically put the Liberator project together. And I remember I was running through this with Jason and Ben as we're watching it on Netflix, just kind of reminiscing that, yeah, I remember it was about four years ago. I'm sitting at a conference room table. Uh, Chad is across from me. Brandon is across from me. And we're just talking about, you know, what we do as tune welders, what they do as school of humans and what they're putting together with Treoscope. And there, there was a moment where you know, you make that one connection. You're like, I want to find out. I want to find a way to work with these guys because I like what they're doing. And I think they looked at us and they said, hey, there's there's something interesting there. So Chad was like, hey, I got this project we're, we're trying to work together on, trying to pitch, and we need some help. And, you know, it's just our nature to, to lean into something like that, lean into that opportunity. So I brought it back to Ben and Jason and said, hey, what do you guys think? And they said, this looks awesome. Let's do whatever we can to to support it. Yeah, I think at that point, we, we sort of set the groundwork, and then they developed a seven-minute pilot. And this is about three to four years ago. They developed a pilot, and we decided that we would sound design and score the pilot for them completely on spec in good faith that, hey, if we help them land the deal, that they would consider us for the job when it came through. And uh, not so much in a dangling a carrot kind of kind of thing, but, hey, you know, we'll... We'll help you guys out now and, and keep us in the mix. So we spent the better part of, I, I think I logged about 60 hours doing the sound design and Jason attacked the music. And we, we bat this little test fit around for about a week and a half and then submitted it and worked real closely with the director, uh, Greg, on, on the tone and, and everything and kind of got the feel of, of what the piece needed to be. And like a year and a half or so later, they get the green light and we're at the table. One of the interesting moments, just to chime in, Ben, I, I know you and Jason remember this well. We're sitting at our studio. The two producers I mentioned uh, came in. They brought the director, Greg, who Ben referenced, and also the showrunner, who happened to be a guy named Jeb Stewart. If you don't know Jeb Stewart, he wrote Die Hard. He wrote The Fugitive and a lot of these big movies. So, you know, seeing him... And talking with him, I remember looking at Ben and Jason going, holy cow, this is kind of amazing. Just talking to the guy and this guy's going to be putting this series together. So that was a cool moment. It's a very powerful series. We should add for people who aren't familiar or haven't seen it yet. It's based on a book called The Liberator, One World War II Soldier's 500-Day Odyssey. It was released on Veterans Day, which made it all the more meaningful, I think. And the soundtrack features a variety of different moods and genres. One thing that I thought you conveyed beautifully was the loneliness of the characters, even though there is this strong battle bonding that they have just the isolation, the fear, and also the eeriness of the silence that can surround them. Five variations on Hunted is very powerful in conveying the horrors of war. To me, the overwhelming tone of both the book and the series is one of overwhelming relentlessness. Based on the real life events, there weren't a whole lot of up or affirmative moments. The one word I can think of is just relentlessness. These guys fought for 500 days or they were in 
Europe for 500 days and they saw battle something like 90% of those days. It was, it was just something unbelievable. And E-Company also just suffered massive casualties in the Battle of Anzio, I, I believe all but just a handful of the company, three or four men died or, or were captured. And one of the reasons for that is they called for you know, shelling on their own positions. You know, I think going into it, we we thought there'd be more opportunity for, you know, to kind of let the light in. And there were some of those, but for the most part, the door opens, a little bit of light comes in, and then it slams shut. You're back in our zone. Because we had such a, a reverence as humans for the story, I think we worked really hard not to ever sensationalize combat. And it's not this big, triumphant hero story, because no matter what happens in combat it's 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 complete horror and so i think a lot of times we we treated it more as such more as as horror and not this big massive you know march to victory there's a quote from slaughterhouse 5 that there's nothing intelligent to say about a massacre when i was thinking of things that maybe kind of sum up our approach to the score i, I think that vonnegut quote was is a good one well Ben, would you talk about the instrument you created specifically for this soundtrack? Yeah. So this instrument was made by a friend of mine, Bill Skiffington. You know, it's interesting to me because I was telling my girlfriend the other day, I think every instrument that I used on the cues that I made were gifts from people, which is just something odd. I, I think there's sort of little Easter eggs I like to put in there, almost as a thanks to those people that have supported me along the way. But um, so I went to a bachelor party weekend with a friend of mine a bunch of years ago, and I met this guy named Bill Skiffington, and he happened to own this company, Wellspring Guitars, and they make cigar box guitars. And about three weeks after this this bachelor party weekend up in the mountains, one of these guitars showed up. I just, you know, at my house. I had no idea. And, and Billy sent me this guitar just to have me check it out or whatever. And I just fell in love with it because it's it's a three-stringed guitar. I can't even remember what I have it tuned to, but it's got this really dark, wooden, sort of like hollow, dry sound to it. And I just picked it up and little tunes and things just kind of poured out of it. And so it's a real simple folk instrument that you know traditionally is made from uh, the body is basically a cigar box these are made i think on the side at a, at a cabinet <laughs> making facility just for fun but billy sent me this thing and i was like man one of the very first licks i came up with was kind of what ended up as the theme uh, in that um the the piece called sparks convincing <laughs> instrument we used it to sort of represent Captain Felix Sparks sort of in his moments of loneliness and it's just this very rootsy salty sound and the, the instrument was really inspiring so it was it was very meaningful to include it in the score and it just kind of worked as this texture that carried through even through some of the more grandiose pieces that were dealing with what we called like a Sparksian moment or whatever, that instrument was a sort of a character player. You could also imagine that it, it's the kind of instrument that might be slung over the shoulder of a soldier who was, you know, marching. Yeah, or something that maybe they pick up as a souvenir almost. You know, you pick up a random folk instrument whenever you're in. Uh, so, you know, it had this, it wasn't a guitar. You know, it doesn't, it's three strings and the voicings are, are, are different. And so it's not this as familiar sounding as a guitar, although we did use guitars sometimes, but they were more to sort of balance out 
the the cigar box guitar we used a nylon string guitar which which for us uh represented a little more of the southwestern and mexican influence um and that those two the cigar box guitar and the nylon string guitar paired up and worked in 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 parallel in, in some of the pieces and not to mention that also that there were a few cues where we wrote the cue to detune the cigar box guitar which gave it even more of a lonely uh desolate kind of quality one one quick thing to add on this for the cigar box piece and the in the nylon string guitar ben i i think i think it was a real pivotal moment for us as we were trying to translate the ideas and the feelings and the and the and the themes we were discussing with the director and the producer and the showrunner figuring out how to tie this this really interesting story of this group of soldiers that come from various backgrounds and native americans mexicans cowboys like people that couldn't sit down in a bar together and have a beer in the us but they're over in germany fighting how can we represent them as a collective and i remember we we talked through it like a lot and and there was the aha moment where you pulled the guitar, pulled that cigar box guitar out. And we're like, that's it, man. Like that is, that's where we need to go. I just remember it being a very pivotal moment for me in, in the development of the music as a whole. We worked on developing music before we even saw the first, well, we'd seen the pilot. I guess what was cool really is that we, we worked with the, with the producers and everybody well in advance of getting the first episode. So we kind of had sort of a screen test uh, of sounds and we figured out the, the, the boundaries, I guess, uh, of where we were going to fall. And that was, you know, for, for my skill set and sort of the cues that I covered, which I think my, my contribution was much more heavy in, in episode one, where the stories were more American, more stateside. My skills lend themselves to that sort of Americana guitar playing roots music. And then as we traveled into Europe and beyond, Jason and our other uh, partner, Mikolai, their sensibilities really, really took over as the story became more complex. I was intrigued with the music for Champagne Campaign. What can you tell us about that? That is probably one of the lighter moments. studied uh, some Django Reinhardt and some Gypsy Jazz and uh, that whole scene they're kind of they're getting cheered on and they're showing up and it's sort of a, it's sort of a moment of reprieve so it's like how how can we build this in without being trite in, in any way and and it was just sort of a nice break to kind of pass them them through some some time where they were not in danger uh, in that piece. And I was going to say too that that moment was happening in the story and in the in the campaign. I think a lot of the soldiers had had thought this was representing kind of the end of the war. We are getting close to the end, but we find out the worst is yet to come. So I think that moment really served as a good way of just a little bit of reprieve before the heart of darkness. Ben, you have said that humans continue to be the most powerful part of the recording process. Would you talk about your relationship to technology when it comes to recording and creating sounds? As a producer over the years, I have, I, I won't go so far as to say a love-hate relationship with technology, I'm lucky that I know how to use it, but I didn't so much get into this uh, business to be a technician uh, and a computer science um, engineer. But I find that having a command of the recording gear helps me get kind of get it out of the way as much as possible. And what I love about the, the human aspect is there are no two people that are going to make the same decision the same way. So living in Atlanta, I've spent years kind of cataloging all the various personalities that I can cast for 
whatever musical moment I'm, I'm trying to either accomplish for myself or for, for a client or for a score or whatever. And even if you say you're working with another composer or something, the way they're going to program a note, the choices they're going to make is completely uh, unique to their, their personality, their life journey. There's so many variables to, to the human input that, that continually make it fascinating beyond the capabilities of recording. And I think those human in, inputs are always going to supersede the recording capabilities or whatever, whether you're using a four track, like I could make something awesome with a four track, the input is going to going to supersede the quality of, of, of the capture, which will ultimately make it more powerful than if maybe I spent $100,000 getting all the right players in place. And it can be exhaustive the amount of options you have in any musical decision to make. But um, but I do find that what I'm most always intrigued and energized by is is the human input and, and the variables that unique personalities play on the decisions in the moment. There's a certain aesthetic that we're granted as composers when we use some of these this technology. You know, there was a moment in the score, it was one of the battle scenes where we'd used some low strings, uh, like some up, some bowed bass and Colegno celli. And the low strings gave a, a really sort of dark quality to the battle, but what really made it come to life was layering a um, modular synth, you know, an octave below. And what that ended up doing was you ended up feeling those strings more it really added to it so we we found that we did a lot of we did a lot of that during the score you know those sort of sub bass sub harmonic tricks are something that weren't really available a hundred years ago to to composers but they but they are now and i think it really adds adds something to the um to the aesthetic yeah absolutely there's nothing in the technology that replaces people you know you could really go into it as far as budget and hiring you know symphonies and all that kind of stuff i I'm an optimist, and I, I tend to think that the jobs have maybe changed, and and some people choose to not evolve, and that's the conversation. Not so much that the machines have taken anything away. That was Ben Holst, Jason Shannon, and Jeremy Gilbertson of the audio production company Tune Welders. You can catch The Liberator streaming on Netflix now. For more information on their production company, check out our website at wabe.org/citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear from author Darren Strauss. His new novel, The Queen of Tuesday, a Lucille Ball story, is part memoir, part fiction, with a whole lot of drama. City Lights producers are Ryan McFadden and myself. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and Lois Reitzes is our host. I'd love it if you'd follow her on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate, and thanks.